Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Each week we will be joined by a panel of researchers, organisations, health and social care workers and the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. This week we will be discussing child and adolescent resilience. Could this week's panel please introduce themselves to our audience? Absolutely. Um, hi, I'm Chris Wackerly. I am from Canada at McMaster University in the departments of pediatrics and psychiatry. I am a clinical psychologist by training and uh, a uh, researcher in resilience with a wide range of uh, um, at-risk youth for mental health um, issues. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Prime. I'm an assistant professor at York University in the Department of Psychology. I am a clinical psychologist by training, working particularly with children and their families. And my research focuses primarily on the early years um, and the ways in which children develop within the context of family systems and family relationships. Hi, um, I'm Joe Boyden, Emeritus Professor of International Development from the University of Oxford and former Director of Young Lives, a longitudinal study of young people growing up in Ethiopia, India, Vietnam and Peru. Hi, I'm Sherry Hamby. I'm a Research Professor of Psychology and Director of the Life Paths Research Center. I'm based at the University of the South in Tennessee in the United States. I am also a clinical psychologist by training, and most of my work focuses on polyvictimization and resilience with a particular interest in the underappreciated strengths of marginalized communities. Hi, I'm Nicole Creasy. I'm a um, PhD candidate at the University of Amsterdam where I study the effects of parenting programs on the prevention and treatment of children's conduct problems. Hi, I'm Rebecca Graber and I am a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Brighton in England and my research specialises in youth resilience to complex complex risks such as socioeconomic marginalisation and I'm particularly interested in how supportive relationships can help with that. Uh, I'm Mark Zimmerman. I'm a professor at the University of Michigan in the School of Public Health and Psychology. Um, it's hard to characterize everything I do in this world, but um, I basically study uh, positive youth development. I'll just capture it as that and applying resilience theory, focusing mostly on uh, violent uh, behavior and risk and promotive factors related to that. My name is Dr. Jennifer McGowan. I'm a lecturer at UCL and a founder of the RRG. My research is on resilience in relation to health psychology. Thank you very much, everyone. So let's get straight into the discussion here with a very broad question to just introduce this topic to our listeners. So I'd like to ask you all, please, to tell me from your perspective, why is resilience in children and adolescents important? Um, sure, that's a terrific question, and I think that resilience in childhood and adolescence is probably the most important reason that it's an important that we understand it is that uh, that trauma and adversity and victimization is so widely prevalent in childhood and adolescence. Uh, a few years ago, 
one of the studies that my colleagues and I, David Finkelhorn, Heather Turner, and I did for the National Survey of Children's Exposure to Violence, found that even by age two, that one in three kids had been exposed to some type of victimization. By the end of adolescence, there have been a number of studies worldwide that put the rates at least in like the 70 to 80% ballpark. If you do a comprehensive assessment of victimization that includes family and peer and community types of experiences. And, and of course, there's other kinds of adverse childhood experiences too. And we now know that those have burdens that carry on into older adulthood. So really there's almost no age at which people are not going to be faced with having to cope and overcome exposure to adversity. And so it's it's super important for us to understand all the amazing things that, that kids and adolescents are already doing and, and how we can leverage their wisdom so that we are helping kids and families who are struggling. Hi, thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate that response, Sherry. And, you know, I think it's really important that we think about how responsive children are to their environments um, and for better and for worse. So um, I think working with children, uh, young people can really, to help build the resiliency processes, can really lay the foundation for future experiences with adversity and um, children's abilities to kind of um, cope with lifelong um, challenges. So it's really important for health and development across the lifespan that we start to build this foundation early on. Thank you. Those are two fantastic responses. And I, I think that um, it's very interesting that the in, uh, supporting resilience among young people has such profound effects for the whole lifespan. And at the same time, um, I think it's really important to just acknowledge the immediate concerns and needs and experiences of young people. Um, and anything that we can do to learn about what they're already doing in their own communities and in their own relationships and families and what their assets are and um, what they're already doing um, within their lives, but also what other kind of supports can be offered are important, not just for the long term and the adults they may become, but for the people who they are at the moment. And um, many uh, societies are not particularly structured to rec fully recognize the personhood of children, uh, despite um, you, you know, the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Child suggests that children should have direct input into the major services um, and decisions that affect them. And in reality, that actually is very difficult to achieve, even though there's a lot of work towards that. Um, and, and so whether you're working directly on an interpersonal level with children or families or thinking about it in a more structural way, anything that you can do to uh, recognize the personhood of children as they are is important. And then, of course, it has significant effects for the adults that they do eventually become. For me, it's really pretty simple. Um, it's... Uh, Basically, we, we spend all this time finding, you know, trying to figure out what's wrong with people and trying to fix them. And I think a resilience, resiliency perspective turns that on its head and says, what's right with people and how do we build up those things? And so I think that's one thing that it, it's a very more positive focus on, on human development. We all are faced with insults, some more than others. Um, and, uh, you know, we're often all faced with coping with uh, one thing or another. 
And uh, I'm not saying that they're all equal, but we, we spend so much time on just, you know, the, the what, what's the bad stuff. And so I think, and, and it, that will then inform what kind of interventions you might do. So rather than uh, focus on individuals and try to fix them, I think a resiliency perspective also allows you to think about uh, ecological, uh, external factors, uh, both in terms of risks and uh, in terms of those promotive factors that might help kids overcome the risks that they face. So for those two reasons, it, it, just, it just makes intuitive sense to me. Um, I appreciate everyone's comments and uh, um, Sherry talked about the high prevalence of violence victimization when you think of it broadly in the United States and just to keep uh, you know uh, that uh, um, point globally the WHO in 2020's report estimated up to 1 billion children aged 2 to 17 years are victims of some form of child abuse or neglect. So uh, what we're starting to see is that for so much of the population, adversity is present. And when you have adversity contexts that these are events put upon children um, that you have resilience adaptations in some form and you know resilience comes from adversity but uh you don't need to have child abuse from back to happen for these kinds of resilient skills to be developed these social emotional skills um that kind of thing so uh, i think resilience is really essential to study because it leads us back to the adversities and we always have to have prevention of the adversities and adverse contexts in mind um, when we are uh, also studying resilience. It's kind of like uh, studying in substance abuse harm reduction. It always still has abstinence as a goal, um, even though it's looking at ways to reduce harms. Um, we still have you know, prevention as our goal in resilience studies. Um, as we look at how to produce har uh, reduce harms and, um, as many people mentioned, strengthen what's uh, developing, especially in terms of bringing resources to disadvantaged populations, that resilience is resources. Um, it's not a uh, individual sense of grit and just perseverance. Um, so I think it's also this kind of resource discussion. Um, I would endorse pretty much everything that everybody said, so I really appreciate um, the, the various perspectives that people have shared. I think, I think on top of what's already been said, I would, I would, I would certainly endorse Rebecca's point about the importance of recognizing children's personhood and the difficulties of doing that. In one of the things I've observed, I've worked a lot in war zones. I've worked a lot with um, forced migrants and um, children in, in prostitution and in very extreme exploitative labor situations. And one of the things that comes very clear to me is the extent to which children often are highly creative, imaginative, and do have ideas about solutions to their own problems. So I think Mark's point about 
this positive focus is really fundamental. And I think they find it very hard to be um, defined as victims and as often as they are defined as passive as well in, in situations of adversity. They're often very far from passive. They're often actually the leaders of their communities. They're often the ones who lead their communities out of trouble. So from my perspective, it's, it is about recognizing their personhood. It's also about enhancing some of the extraordinary insights that they have and, and, and making that bridge to communicate with children specifically when their societies so often close down the spaces for children to voice their experiences, to you know, exercise choice and so on. Um, so I think it's quite a it's quite a big challenge, actually. And, you know, much of the work that's done in the name of children's rights, for example, globally in child protection is extraordinarily paternalistic. And we really need to get out of that mode and to understand children are not always experts in their own situations, but they do have insights. They do have a lot to bring to the table. And somehow we need to create platforms to make that happen. Thank you very much, Joe, and everyone. I think that's a, a really great example of all the different ways that resilience can end up being a part of a child's life and how it moves into their development as an adulthood as, as an adult as well. Um, so I'd like to take, I'd like to uh, move slightly further into what Joe just said and uh, what Chris mentioned earlier, um, which is that it, there are a lot of mechanisms going on around the child or the adolescent that can impact their resilience. So how can, how can we or how can society support that resilience in children and adolescents? I think for me, um, one is it's important that we don't focus on individual kids and victim blame. I think that is hugely important that it is the context. Uh, you know, we're talking about personhood, we're talking about youth empowerment, and I totally think those are great ideas, and thanks for bringing those up. Having said that, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we know that kids' brains aren't fully developed until about 25. We also know that, um, you know, some don't really think about these things in the same way as we as, as adults. So I don't want to also don't want to put the responsibility on them to come up with the solutions. And that's a long-winded way of saying, I think, when I think about youth violence, for example, I you know, youth violence isn't a problem of youth, it's a problem of adults. What kind of world have we created for kids to you know, solve problems by shooting each other, stabbing each other, getting into fights with each other? We have failed as adults. And so I think, I think it's important to think about this as a, an environmental contextual issue. I think that allows us to sort of think about structural racism and um, socioeconomic issues and, uh, and family issues and ACEs, the uh, adverse childhood experiences. Um, and so I, I, that, that's just kind of how I think about it. It's, it's really, uh, really environmental uh, and, and we should really stay away for it. I, I don't really you know, uh, pay attention to the studies that sort of suggest that there's a personality trait that is resilient. I don't believe that. I think that there are um, contexts that it can help kids. Now, now, it's certainly true that maybe if they have grit or they have some sort of characteristics, that's helpful. 
We call those assets, individual assets, but we have to get away from thinking about individuals. That, that would be my point, uh, my point of view. Thanks for that comment, Mark. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I'm, you know, I think early on and, you know, when we're thinking about some of those individual, I'll call individual qualities that support resilience, things like um, problem solving, adaptability, those things are themselves so influenced by early environments. We know that our nurturing experiences help to shape brain development early on. So building resilience really starts from, um, from the outset, from the get-go. And um, you know, building resilience within these nurturing experiences and that, that become individualized over time, right? So then we take those, those um, that kind of external regulation with us over time and which supports our resilience to adversity. Um, and then knowing those kids or babies even that are, that are um, have some vulnerabilities, you know, whether it's temperamentally or developmentally, and really thinking about how we can um, build tolerance, flexibility, support, of course, help build skills um, so that they are, um, can, can flourish um, with, the, with what they're coming to the world with. So uh, for me, I really think about, you know, building resilience from a kind of preventative bottom up way um, which of course is environmental and, and working with individuals early on. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on this issue of context and I've often wondered the extent to which we really think about ways in which some of the environments, including the environments that our institutions create, are actually disempowering and anti-resilient. And I say this because if you work in societies where children from a very young age, play active roles. You know, they work, they support, they help support, they help in, they have pro-social skills and caring roles and skills um, developed from a very, very young age. Um, whereas in a lot of richer societies, they're kind of separated out from the adult world in so many different ways. And I think of this as being a very disempowering kind of a context. You know, they're kind of regulated within school environments. They're regulated by all kinds of institutional um, settings and so on. And I, I, so I wonder in some degree, the extent to which modern society is almost, um, it's almost, it's challenging um, as a context, I think, for, for young people to grow up resilient and strong. And in, in most of the contexts I've worked in, which are in developing countries, the, the issue of violence, the issue of drug taking, many of these, these problematic behavioral um, issues that are connected by many people with children and young people somehow automatically, they hardly exist, they hardly occur. It's kind of assumed that they're integrated, integral parts of society and not separated out and, you know, given sort of separate lives, as it were. And I just think that that's one of the kind of contextual issues that perhaps we don't think enough about. We assume that we're giving children a better quality of life. By, by infantilizing childhood in a, in a sense. And I just wonder if that isn't a way of also reducing resilience, reducing um, experiences of the challenges that all life brings to all of us. I don't think you can separate children away from risk, I guess, but I do want to endorse what everybody's saying about the importance of not focusing on individual traits. Um, it's very much more than that. 
I, I so agree with much as what of what has been said and um, what comes uh, through in my mind is, is that um, at whatever level you want to work with, whether um, to support a child or their family or their community, um, I think what's really important is to acknowledge the interdependence of a child and the significant others in their lives. So um, whether right from infancy, the dependence of that infant upon their care, immediate caregivers, and also the dependence that they have with respect to the structures and policies and supports that are around them and how those shape the choices that are available to families that um, that uh, subsequently have different um, different impacts. Um, but as you know, the child grows up, I, I, I really speak um, what Joe just said about the potential disempowering uh, aspects of even affluent countries that really resonates with a lot of my research, which looks at um, pockets of uh, socioeconomic marginalization in the higher income country, um, where there's a lot of regulation of children, there's a lot of expectations for them to behave in a way that's not developmentally appropriate, that they can't regulate their emotions to that degree, they can't um, control physical impulsivity to that degree, um, it's perfectly normal to push boundaries and um, to do things like seek out peer relationships, um, even if that's in the middle of the classroom, right? And if you add in some structural racism to that, you get an easy recipe for um, a lot of uh, adversity that creates um, a cycle of risk and disempowerment. Um, so in terms of how, you know, what mechanisms can support, I think um, I agree that you might want to support an individual child to support them, to see how to help them navigate out of whatever the distress and challenge is. But ultimately, it's not just about them and their personality, it's um, supporting families to have good you know, opportunities and um, when there's disconnects or ruptures with family members or when, when those families are facing challenges to support that because attachment is so important and um, parental mental health is so important. Um, addressing children's basic needs. Um, research does suggest time and time again that if you address things like stability of housing, mental, mental distress um, reduces. And so sometimes it is actually something that doesn't look like psychology, but it really is. Um, and I think also thinking about um, the more we turn to children and young people as being having insight, I liked that term before, they may not be experts, but they have insight. That also means that the way that they see their relationships has meaning. Um, a lot of my work is on friendship. And usually people think about friendships among children as like the roots to dysfunction, you know? But I don't think we would seek out friendship if all it did was bring us into substance addiction and, um, you know, detentions. We do it to meet needs and because we're social animals and, and it brings us so many benefits. Um, if we can support as a community, if we can support children to have functional relationships with each other, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, and, and that's something that requires adult commitment to support, I think. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. I wanted to just raise two points. Um, the first that I have really appreciated every, what everyone has said about sort of shifting off of this individualistic model of what resilience is and that it's, 
you know, it's a lot more about grit and how important it is to bring in the social ecology. Uh, the first point I want to make about that, though, is that I think that the field still really wrestles in that a, a growth area for probably almost everybody who does this kind of work is to figure out that right balance between understanding the impact of the of the resources that are uh, that are around us in terms of families and communities, and also respecting, I appreciated the points that, that Joe and Rebecca made earlier about personhood and autonomy. And, you know, even very young children have, you know, do have their own assets that they can bring to things and their own points of view. And so somehow, you know, trying to create that balance between respecting that they are people and that they do have their own perspectives and that they even do, even at young ages, there are differences in, for example, you know, emotion regulation or social skills and things like that. And so, you know, there are different things that we they could leverage, that they do leverage to be resilient. Um, and the second point I wanted to make is that I just wanted to bring in as we're thinking about the uh, ec ecological approach is to think about the physical environment too, both in terms of the built environment and in terms of the natural environment. Uh, you know, so like thinking even about my own childhood and about how much important spending time outdoors was to me with, you know, just coping and, and developing so many of my own skills in, in different ways. Uh, you know, in terms of group outings or just individual time walking in the woods and uh, but also the built environment and and in terms of, a you know, kind of a less paternalistic approach to providing that kind of support. I think that that's really a place that we have neglected our attention to, like, how can we change uh, you know, the physical spaces in schools to make them safer and to support those good kinds of peer interactions that Rebecca was talking about and minimizing the risk of problematic ones. And so I, I just think that that's a, an, an issue that hasn't been brought into the conversation yet that I, where there's huge potential. Thank you. Um, I think that uh what everybody's talked about, a different context, plural of, of uh, adversity and resilience. And um, globally, virtually everyone has signed on to the rights of the child document saying at least we are signatory countries supporting this idea of children have the right to participate in decisions. The reality is that in some contexts, children do not have those kinds of rights to make decisions about participation. And I'll just talk about two examples. In the sexual exploitation area, we've looked at, um, we've just completed some reviews on uh, what's happening globally for boys. And uh, what was very clear is that in some contexts, uh, there is not a, you know, children aren't allowed to be children with or have decision-making powers. So an example would be where the family, it's kind of like almost a family business uh, and expectations that children contribute financially to the, to the family or community financials. And so one uh, boy talked about um, wanting to uh, get medicine for 
a sicker younger brother, which is, you know, the kind of nobility of, and compassion of children. And they were uh, facilitated into uh, sex trafficking and that was at age eight. So, you know, that, that boy had really lo lovely um, motivations and feelings, but the broader environment didn't support kind of a true expression of that. And some of the interventions that address this uh, broader uh, economic issues um, would be things like cash transfers so that there isn't that need to, you know, put your children consciously in harm's way uh, to support, you know, family health. And the other example was uh, one where we, we need to shift attitudes so that uh, where um, gender expansive youth were not uh, accepted by family or tolerated in the community and became homeless, uh, street involved, and then they were at high risk for um, being involved in uh, sex trafficking, sexual exploitation. Um, because they have to find a way to eat and, you know, et cetera. And so these are really, you know, where's the social safety net there that really works to um, prevent homelessness and works at those kind of um, underneath factors that lead to that? Um, you know, expulsion from the home. Yeah, I wanted to uh, just say that I really agree with the um, idea that resilience isn't something that just comes from within. And maybe there has been a little bit too much focus on that in the past with this idea that children have this ordinary magic that makes them in some cases more resilient. And I think it's really important that um, we take on some of uh, the burden as a society to give children the right things that they need to enrich their lives really and help their development. Um, I also wanted to touch on something that Rebecca said about expectations and I think that's maybe somewhere where we need to look as practitioners in the future in regards to increasing resilience in children and because we do have specific adult expectations now for children in many ways and I see that in my work as parenting coach that parents are often concerned well why doesn't my child want to sit down and do their homework for three hours why don't they understand that you know this is the most important thing in their life that education is paramount to their future and I think we maybe have to uh, demedicalize kind of children not having adult um, ideas and expectations and allow them to be children and help adults understand uh, child development and what's normal for a child to be thinking and feeling about and want, what they want to do with their time, um, which is, you know, for a lot of young children spending time on Minecraft, for example, that's, that's what they want to do. And uh, yeah, so I think definitely we should start thinking about our expectations for children when we're thinking about resilience. 
Thank you very much, Nicole. And I think that that does wonderfully sum up the ideas that have been coming up from the group here. The idea that um, that we need a social safety net for children, but we also need a supportive infrastructure of the society around them. But one of the things that um, I found quite interesting in between what people were saying there is there seemed to be some uh, difference of opinion on how much structure or how much freedom is actually beneficial for children and for their resilience. So I was wondering if anyone had any specific um, comments they would like to, to give on, on where that boundary lies between giving children freedom or structure. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, from my perspective, that comes to uh, some parenting. We'll, we're drawn back into the parenting literature on, you know, uh, authoritative style parenting where you're really trying to scaffold uh, for the child uh, their development. So it might be somewhat different for each child, be, uh, you know, when you're able to recognize signature strengths, you might want to provide more support around that. Um, you know, you want to keep that discovery engine going um, and uh, that, uh, you know, safe, secure base that you provide. So, you know, that attachment relationship where really the child is having confidence in you to provide, uh, to be responsive. Um, and uh, I, so I think there's not necessarily a really easy answer to that, but you I wouldn't want to see people think, well, you know, on the side of child rights or decision-making or, you know, autonomy is a process just as resilience is a process and it unfolds over time so that developmentally you're offering more autonomy, uh, independence opportunities, um, but you're also there as a supportive uh, base always. And if anyone has had kids, uh, you know that in young adulthood with all the challenges, you're still being that supportive base, you're still scaffolding <laughs> to some degree. Um, so it's a, it's a, that's how I would kind of view this idea. Uh, I, I like that you, uh, Chris, talked about being a parent. I only have a two-year-old and I'm learning a lot about something that I think is important for parenting, which is just how much we're balancing so many needs for, of the child. So I think um, when it comes to structure um, or freedom uh, and freedom, it's really, you know, when we start to hold all of our child's children's needs in mind, we, that can then guide um, how we're scaffolding, right? So, you know, I, when I'm trying to decide whether to give my child the third cookie, I'm like, oh, I want her to be independent. I want her to have some agency. And also I, you know, want her to be healthy and have healthy habits and learn how to regulate. And so I'm feeling it's lose-lose, but I think we can also think of it as kind of a win-win and, um, I think the problem becomes when we start to do things because we say so, right? Because I'm in charge or because um, that's, you know, that's the rule, although sometimes we do need to follow rules, but, you know, it, because the parents want respect, those things, those intentions aren't quite child-centered. Um, but when we really do center children, uh, the structure and the firmness is there for their needs. Um, and I think, um, sometimes their wants um 
and just to go on to go with that a little more, I think there is this fine line between firmness and harshness, um, but it's a really important line. And I think underlying the distinction between being firm and being harsh is really just respecting children and um, respecting uh, their their needs. So I don't know that there's an easy answer to that, but um, I think that I just want to normalize the challenge around making those decisions. Uh, this is such an interesting question. And thank you, Heather, for normalizing the challenge, because um, I was thinking of myself as a researcher, but also as the parent of a three-year-old, where again, um, if I did everything that, if I respected my child's personhood in every respect, it would be a difficult life for us, for us all. But I think, um, I think when, when, when uh, certainly when I say to respect personhood, that doesn't mean to put children at the same level, capacity, ability as adults. And um, so not in a paternalistic way of, again, you know, saying, well, I know better because I'm older, but to say that their, um, their way of thinking, and this goes back to like, Piaget, if you studied Piaget, their way of thinking is different, right? And beautifully so. Their way of thinking is different to, um, to adults and uh, that, that, you know, thinking is different between children as well. And um, I think it's about trying to meet children where they are, to try to understand what that child's life is like from their perspective, how they see their world, the, the good things about it and the challenging things about it. And as an adult to try to offer up opportunities for communication, infrastructure, activities, et cetera, that work at that level and a little bit above um, to try to, to, to Kind of you know just meet meet them where they are so that doesn't mean that um my three-year-old will actually be designing the playground um but it is relevant if you're undertaking an urban planning design uh, to actually go out to children not only in schools but children who've been excluded from schools etc uh to say well what kind of play spaces what kind of places do you actually want right um, because a lot of, you know, for example, a lot of um, so-called delinquency, really, if, if there were different spaces available, um, those choices might be a little bit different. And I'm thinking back to what Sherry said about um, nature and the benefits of being in nature. And of course, the world has just, you know, changed since any of us were kids. But um, a lot of what would be good for children, I think, might also be good for adults, whether that's contact with nature or more, more authentic relationships and communication and having input. Um, because, yes, they are, you know, creative um, interpreters of their own world and they have solutions that um, maybe can be implemented, maybe not, but it's worth asking and seeing what's important. Um, so I think that's where I would go is just meeting, meeting people where they're at, whether they are 18 months, 18, 80, whatever else age. I agree with that idea that um, it's meeting children where they're at, where they are, and it is about scaffolding and structuring as, as, as is appropriate in different contexts and with different age groups and, and genders and so on. And I think I think we can all recognize, we've kind of said quite clearly that authoritarian approaches, which assume 
the, the not just the power, but the knowledge and the wisdom and information and everything else resides with the adult. That is never the best way to develop resilience in, in children. It's never the best way to scaffolding scaffolding for children into the you know development into their into their um, growing youth and adult years but the, but but I also think it's important to recognize that autonomy is not necessarily the objective in all cultures by any means and um, I think it's very easy if you're thinking resilience in the end we do often end up thinking about individuals who are in some way autonomous functioning adults is often what people are after in in the kind of supportive environments they create for children but the functioning is often about autonomy about you know productive working lives about uh, uh, autonomous decision making and so on but that's just not the way it is in many parts of the world and i think scaffolding in a society where your membership of the group is actually the most important form of resilience for you. It's the, it's the most supportive environment you can be in. Scaffolding there is much more about the development of pro-social skills, about the, the flourishing of those skills rather than the flourishing of autonomy. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, and thank you for everybody's comments. I, um, I you know, I, I do agree with what Chris said, and also uh, defer to her as like the most experienced parent, uh, you know, uh, probably uh, uh, I have two kids, mine are 18 and, and 21. And so I, I appreciate that sort of metaphor of scaffolding, but, but I, I wanted to, you know, also uh, chime in with something similar to what Joe said is just to recognize that that does look so different in different uh, community context and, you know, and again, bringing back in both the social ecology and the, the physical ecology. So I live in a, in a quite small town in a, in a very rural area. And so, you know, like what I would, you know, let my kids, you know, run around. And then I also, you know, my kids benefit from race privilege in the United States. And so, you know, I don't have to really prepare them to deal with like everyday acts of discrimination and prejudice and the way that other parents do. And so I, I did just want to also reinforce the idea that there's not going to be a, a one size fits all um, approach to you know, striking that that balance, you know, even even within a single community, you know, or much less, uh, you know, as, as others have said, uh, you know, cross cross culturally in different contexts. Just a couple of things, and uh, those of you who do have older children, first of all, uh, what you think are the most important things and, and what you're thinking about for that kid, they'll, when they turn 25, they'll say, they'll raise something that you'll like, oh my God, I can't even believe you remember that, or you won't even remember it, and they, but they do. So the things that you think are consequential is really completely different. So uh, there's hope, and um, you get better at it. I kind of talk about um, parenthood uh, when, when our baby was born, the first one, and certainly the second one, but the first one really struck me is what they did is um, they basically um, showed you what to do about the belly button. So the belly button would dry up and fall off and had to wash the baby. And then they uh, made sure you had a car seat and they said, see you later. That was it. And when I went and bought a new car, they not only did they give me a schedule for when to bring it in, they came in, sat in the car with me, showed me where all the buttons are and all the things that happened. 
that's a long-winded way of saying um, we have to be careful, I think, of putting too much on the parents. And I agree with what everybody has said here, by the way. But I just want to pay a little bit of the gadfly here and say, uh, like children, parents are also in context. And um, uh, I, I gave a, a, a talk once that my mentor was in the, in the audience. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I, was, I don't usually get nervous when I do that. But then your mentor's there. And of course, you get self-conscious. <clears throat> and I talked about the importance of, uh, and we looked at parent, parental support as a resiliency factor in kids' lives and whatnot. And afterwards, he said, you know, that was, that was really good but be careful to blame the parents. You just go away from blaming the victims of the kids and then you go to blame the parents. But the parents are also growing up in stressful um, environmental conditions, stressful economic conditions. <clears throat> um, they have their own stressors and their own histories. So I, I just wanna say that uh, we, don't, we, we can't put it all on the parents either, that there's a lot, um, a lot we need to do to kind of, um, think about uh, social change. And I'm, I'm just going to think, go back and, and mention, sound like a little bit of a broken record, but the idea of thinking ecologically, sometimes to help kids be resilient, we don't work with the kids or the families. Maybe what we do is we think about redistributing resources in a community to pay attention to how we can create voice for them. And so when you, you know, the idea of ecology, the notion of interdependence, sometimes if you push the system here, it has an effect over there. And so if we always just focus on the kid, we might just think about the kid and their environment, but it's really maybe, maybe thinking about, you know, thinking even beyond families uh, and neighborhoods and that sort of thing. So just make those few comments. Thank you. I just want to speak about this uh, uh, notion of what happens in a society, in a community or society that's more collective oriented. I've had the um, honor of working with uh, the Six Nations of the Grand River community here in Canada. And um, part of this is my observations and part of it's my learning um, from elders and the community. Um, that, you know, the structure within a nation of having clans, uh, so for instance, you know, the turtle clan or the wolf clan, means that you can, you know, expect support um, from that, your clan. So it's a broad network. It also, there are also um, understandings of relationships across clans. So if I have a uh, uh, death in my family, myself and my clan who's mourning um, get the assistance of a specific other clan who sits opposite in the longhouse. So they provide all the support, uh, food, etc. during uh, my, my, my own, myself, my family, my clan's mourning. So I think it would be fair to say what's really emphasized is the relationality and um, the resilience of the relationality, not just within your own uh, self or your own family, but in your broader nation and then cross nations, and then relationality to um, all that is, <laughs> all that has been existed from the creator. Um, the land, the waters, you know, the spirit world, it's, et cetera. 
And that engenders a sense of responsibility. They uh, wouldn't talk about rights as much as responsibilities to care for the land, to care for others. Um, and, and that I think is, uh, you know, just a, a wonderful way to conceptualize the broader structures that could be in place where, you know, resilience is just, you know, is just part of the natural adaptive capacities. Um, but their view would be that the creator has given you all the tools to action and galvanize your resilient journey and your choices to, to you know, what road you're walking um, for that journey. And the other sort of interesting thing is that every start of the day, they have a, you know, they go through a Thanksgiving address where they acknowledge the relationality and, thank, and, and come start off right away from a place of thanks and gratefulness. And we know gratefulness is the great uh, resilience uh, intervention strategy too. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on something uh, Mark said actually, which is that parenting by no means is the only or the most important factor when it comes to child resilience. I think that's the emerging picture anyway. I think as long as parents are avoiding maltreatment of their child, parenting can be really just good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. And I think that's a really key message for parents to know because we know that parenting stress itself is one of the biggest predictors of dysfunctional parenting. So I think a message really to get across is that you can be just a good enough parent to have a resilient child. The other thing I wanted to just reflect on when Christine was talking is about that maybe as child development researchers, we do spend a lot of time thinking about child development in um, European and American society and very little about um, other cultures. And I realized listening that maybe we do need to um, look a little bit more at collectivist uh, societies and those children and also what we can learn from them and bring back to our practices uh, for me in the Netherlands and, and other European countries. I think that it's something we should be doing actually and thinking about child development more in a more worldly way. Yeah, well, I'd like to pick up on that on that point, actually, and also something that Christine and Mark said and see if I can kind of pull those ideas together, because I think Mark's absolutely right in saying that we shouldn't be putting too much on parents, not least because, in my experience, in some of the most extreme circumstances, children are the parents. We're just assuming that there are parents present. Well, in many contexts, they're not. They're absent because in war zones, they've been killed in contexts where you've got very high rates of HIV, you don't have AIDS and you don't have the antiretrovirals. Basically, there's a whole generation that's been wiped out. And there are many other kinds of settings where actually it's often grandparents and children and no parents at all. And sometimes the grandparents are completely overwhelmed and they're not the caregiver. It's the children, the elder children who look after their younger siblings. And I just wanted to pick up then on, so I think we need to recognize that we can't just assume those generational connections, unfortunately. And that's often the reality that we're dealing with. But in that absence, you also find in many contexts where this relational issue that Christine was talking about is so much stronger, where networks 
are more dif diffuse, but actually very present in children's lives. And where those networks and those attachments are often what get activated to, su to support children. So I think, I think it's, it's actually looking also in those kinds of contexts, what kinds of, of wider networks do, do children have access to that they're able to um, seek support from? What kind of resources are they getting from those? And I just think that a lot of the, the sort of um, nucleated, nuclear family type arguments that I see in a lot of the Western literature just isn't relevant um, in many of the contexts that I work in. So we really have to think very differently about attachment, relationships. And I think the idea that in some contexts you have recourse to his, even historical um, fig figures, ancestors, there's lots of sources of resilience that are quite spiritual and they're not necessarily present in concrete today relationships, but very much present in, in spirits that have been in the past, that have, have passed on wisdom and knowledge and, and so on. And I think that's actually really important if we're trying to kind of capture and build on um, resilience in children. I, I can't agree enough with what's been said. And um, as I'm as I'm listening to everything, I, I I just want to draw attention to, I think that as we talk about resilience, we um, can't help but, act, you know, we're ultimately kind of talking about what we collectively think is a good childhood or what we think is a healthy child. And I think. What a lot of the speakers have really pointed out is that we don't necessarily agree on that, and that there is no such, there is no definition of that that applies across all contexts. But there is an issue in policy across different nations, um, that you know, across the different countries that I think we reside in, and some of the ones that we work in. Um, where there is a there is an implicit view of what a healthy child is and what a healthy childhood is and i just really want to draw that out because um that is something that has been constructed it's a historical artifact so it's a cultural artifact in the way that um i think a few of the other speakers have really spoken to really elegantly about um uh kind of non non uh white western uh um cultures but it is historical so the idea of like you know children progressing into adulthood it actually comes from darwinian high hierarchical progressions where children are seen as being un uh, they are earlier stages of child of of later adults they're not seen in and of themselves as being kind of um you know their own beings they're seen as only important in terms of who they will later be and that is not it doesn't have to be that way um there wasn't a concern about education until there was um industrialization and actually there was a lot of social outcry about the working conditions for children and so um state schooling was introduced in a lot of places as a response to you know really quite unsafe working conditions for children um and along you know side of you've got professionalization of psychology it becomes a discipline um and i'm lecturing a little bit aren't i but i think it's really helpful actually because a lot of times when something is the implicit it's the default it's the norm you don't see it as such and we can talk about differences but i i would encourage everyone to think about you know if if you are um uh you know subject to 
uh, Western ideals on this um, and uh, that kind of, you know, that cultural norm to think, well, that is only one norm and it's actually one where at a different historical moment, it would be different. Um, even so John Bowlby came up with the, you know, sort of identified the idea of attachment, this bond between caregiver. But he did that in the 1950s, where basically it was mother or nothing. And as others have pointed out, um, it's not just about a relationship with a mother or a single parent. Um, there are other important inputs there. And that's it, it's not um, it's not a law of nature that it has to be that way. Um, and that really does permeate a lot of views on parenting. Um, as I said, I'm the mother of a toddler, preschooler, whatnot. So there's all sorts of ideas about what I should be doing, what our family should be doing. And they're all equally valid and invalid. And I kind of came back to the thinking that, you know, your, your child really teaches you how to be their parent. Um, the children around you teach them, to, you know, how can we be their caregivers? How can society be the caregivers to the people, to the children that are there? And um, culturally, I think there is, because there isn't a, a um, there aren't systematic ways for children to feed into the systems that have power. One unfortunate side effect of that, I think, is that um, there's a bit of distrust around children's expertise. And that can trickle down all the way down to parenting sometimes as well, I think. But if we can, you know, open up and listen, I think that's very helpful. So uh, thank you, everyone. This has been a really interesting discussion. As someone who's not a developmental psychologist, I have learned a lot so far. Um, I'd like to uh, sort of wind down the discussion with a more general question, if I may, which is we've talked about um, how resilience may or may not occur in childhood and adolescence, and we've talked about what kind of factors might impact that. What I'd like to talk about now is what impact could resilience have on the child or adolescent? So what impact does having high or low resilience have on the child, both at the time and potentially also in the future as well? Uh, yeah, I'm going to... Uh push back on that question a little bit because I don't think that it makes, when you talk about like having high or low resilience, you're, 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 you're inching back over to that personality-based model of resilience. And so I don't think that, you know, it's either something and, you know, and that you, it's not, you know, it's not just about whether or not an individual has it or a family has it, or even whether like a community or a society has it. I mean, you know, it, it waxes and wanes. I mean, one family might cope really well with certain kinds of challenges and then not do well with the others, um, you know, and, and that these are, I mean, the, the main thrust of, of my work is to really kind of shift the focus to malleable features of both, uh, of, of all aspects of the ecology. So individuals, families, communities, cultures, and also the, the physical environment, as I mentioned, uh, you know, and that those things are, you know, that we need to shift off. I mean, part of 
part of the problem of a lot of resilience research or research that's you know positive use development or any of these things that are kind of roughly aligned with it is that there is this focus on these kind of static characteristics. So for example, there's all this stuff coming out now on positive childhood experiences as kind of a counterweight to the adverse childhood experiences or, or ACEs idea. And I think that that is great to start thinking about like how can we balance the scale in the other direction but almost all of those positive childhood experiences uh, have two problems I mean both they tend to be these sort of historical descriptions in the same way that the adversity does and they're also almost all based on like support you got from families or from or from teachers or from others and so they they again they they take away any sort of agency from from the children themselves but, you know, if you're a 35-year-old who has a high trauma burden and you didn't get, you know, very many of those positive childhood experiences and you had a lot of those adverse childhood experiences, I mean, that doesn't mean that you're doomed to, you know, to suffer, you know, depression and PTSD or whatever for the rest of your life or, or higher risk of all the health conditions we know are associated with that. And that there's all these you know, that we need to start thinking about assets and resources in a much more uh, flexible and changing and, and process-oriented way so we can always bring things in that, that beef people up. And, uh, you know, there's some really great and exciting research that's emerging that some of these things like uh, you know, ranging from mindfulness to getting involved in pro-social activities yourself. So, you know, volunteering or activism or, or narrative experiences, that those kinds of things can even have positive impacts, even at the physiological level of, you know, like stress responses and immune system functioning and things like that. And so, you know, there's it's, it's never, it's never over. It's never done. I mean, I, you know, I'm someone who has like a fairly high trauma history myself. And I, I don't, you know, see that as like a static thing that I, I did or didn't cope with. I just see it all as like a, a lifelong process of, of doing what I can to, you know, build up my assets and resources and, and, you know, minimizing and trying to insulate myself from, from further risk of exposure. And I, I think that that's, that's the way I would think about it for any child or, or adolescent too, is what can we do to, to bolster their assets and resources at, at all these different ecological levels and insulate them as best we can from, from future ex adverse experiences. Knowing, I mean, I think a few people have said this already, knowing that that, that may never be zero. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes, I mean, the pandemic, surely, if nothing else, has been like, like a good lesson in how we, we can't, uh, you know, even the most privileged and uh, successful person by some of these definitions we've been tossing around can't insulate themselves from, from every bad thing that might happen. Yeah, I just wanted to second uh, Sherry's point, actually, that I really don't think we can say a child has high or low resilience, or at least we shouldn't say that they do and quantify resilience in that way. I think we definitely should be thinking that development is something that happens across the whole lifespan. So you're always accumulating new skills as, as you go forward and need the resources for, for that. And um, so I definitely think we should be taking uh, a more flexible approach to resilience. Like Sherry has said, I think she hit the nail on the head really.
Actually, I'm not sure I've got much to add because I agree. I was going to make the same points that Sherry and Nicole have made. That I think, I think it's a it, resilience is a highly dynamic process, and um, it changes enormously in in over the course of life. And you know, I've I've worked with people who've who've been very strong throughout youth, adulthood until they've reached old age, and then suddenly they've become extraordinarily vulnerable and you know traumatic experiences that they had very early on in life have become very challenging for them to deal with at that stage so i think i think it isn't about um a resilient or less resilient person because it does go that does very much speak to the sort of individuated model that we're we're all basically saying doesn't really fit with this more ecological understanding um and i think it is about supportive protective um environments as much as is possible i think one of the things we've not talked about very much which is really important is being informed not excluding children from i think one of the, the tendencies um in in western societies is to protect children from uh difficult experiences and and so on by basically shutting them out and um you know there, there's been some wonderful research with with children who are very sick in hospital which basically shows that they're very well aware of how sick they are they may they will well know that they're actually likely to die um and they're working very hard to protect their parents from knowing that they have that knowledge which which is so sad because the the, the, the communication is 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 missed because the parents are trying not to frighten them but actually the children already know and you know, it, it, there it's a problem of information and communication. And I think that's one of the resources that children find very hard to access. They're often just not in the information loop about what's going on around them, but they often know intuitively. And it's very sad because I think that's a source of vulnerability when they when they don't, they're not included in those information loops, which can be really important for one's resilience for, for surviving very difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's such an excellent point, and I would underscore that even if you, you even if you don't think that children are interpreting what's happening, they are. There's a, a wonderful study um, about children transitioning from uh, pediatric um, complex care to adult services. I think it's Van Star, um, and. There was an, a, a piece in it that really struck with me that um, there was a child who was convinced that they had a demon in their belly because they had an edema, if I can, if, if that's the word, and they had heard it, but you know, again, nobody had wanted to explain what that meant, so they were terrified because they had a demon in their belly, um, and and children will interpret the world uh, in their own ways. And, um, you know, I, I guess coming back to a previous uh, point, like how can you meet them where they are and not view that as lowering yourself, um, uh, you know, so whether that's uh, in parenting or in services or in designing policies um, and releasing funding, um, that it's not about lowering yourself because I think that it, itself is a very, um, uh, you know, that's a view of children that is particular to Western views of at this moment, and it, it doesn't have to be that way. So I agree that the, this question about 
you know, what do you expect from a resilient child? I think as researchers, it can be helpful to speak about kind of to try to quantify some aspects of resilience in a broad sense in order to kind of get a sense of what assets assets are available, what kind of protective mechanisms are operating, like what's working, what's not. But certainly in terms of individuals, I don't think, um, I, I think that you're kind of trying to scope things out rather than have a view as to what your expectations are, what about outcomes. Um, so those outcomes, can be very influenced by unrealistic ideals. If they're very, if they're outcomes that are very much informed by the child and their support system and that culture and that context, then I think there's more validity validity in that. Um, but it's a it's a dangerous game. You have to be very careful with with it. I think that's great. Thank you, everyone. And. Uh... Well, the last five minutes now, so was there anything people felt would be important to add or that they'd like the general public to know about child or adolescent resilience that we haven't covered? Can I, can I say just that children are, are resilient? I know that's like a cliche, but they are. It doesn't mean expect them to manage everything, but I'm also kind of thinking about how like when I give attachment lectures, I usually get a couple of students coming up afterwards and crying because they themselves have had traumatic histories where they're parenting a, a child where there's a, a lot of adversity. Um, so I, I think it tends to touch on challenging things for people sometimes. So I, I, I would just kind of underscore that um, change is always possible and there are always possibilities for, um, people to experience life in a way that feels better for them. Um, so whether that's thinking of, you know, the listeners thinking about themselves or thinking about children that they know, um, that's something that I want to underscore. Uh, yeah, I mean, similarly along those lines, I think I would just close with saying that we have really just started to really barely tap into all the different assets and resources and strengths and protective factors or whatever language you want to use for that, that, that people do bring to bear on coping with things. And, you know, I think the literature has tended to, you know, kind of uh, coalesce prematurely around things like social support or emotion regulation, but, but there, you know, there's this really exciting work being done that is kind of opening up our conceptions of what all of these different strengths are. And uh, in the work that I'm doing that we have, we've now looked at more than 35 different strengths and the one that has really I thought it was going to be this really tough contest to see like which ones were sort of most important. That's something we're very interested in in my research program is like, you know, if you only have limited resources, like what should you focus on using that you're trying to help kids and families and communities develop. Uh, and the one that has come out hands down stronger than all the others is having a sense of purpose or some sense of meaning in life. And which we define as connecting to something larger than yourself. So, uh, you know, so for me here, like, uh, you know, part of my mission is reducing the burden of trauma in life. And so I'm making time in my day to, to be part of this podcast because of that, or, you know, several of us have talked about being a parent. So you might be committed to a role or uh, it could be a, you know, a, a religion or a spirituality, or it could be, 
you know, if you're a member of the military, like following, you know, like that, that, that code and being a member of that group. I mean, there's all different, different ways that you can connect to something larger than yourself. But, um, but we found that even fairly young kids do that. We work with kids as young as age 10 in our research program. And, um, you know, a lot of them also, uh, you know, I think, you know, going back to this point of like not infantilizing them, that a lot of them, like what they really draw strength from is feeling that they're, they're mentoring other students, or they might be, you know, captain of a team, or they might be a tutor for younger kids, and, and that those are the kids that are really, uh, you know, that those are the ones that are doing the, the best at overcoming trauma. And I think a lot of times, when we construct our services that we think about things that we're going to give them or things that we're going to give their families instead of helping them uh, become more more like us and helping them you know become leaders in in these in this work to make their communities better and that that really uh, is probably a, uh, you know, there's a whole literature on that that doesn't get brought into work on on trauma and resilience very often. But I think that that's just so so key. And so I will close with that thought. Yes, and I think the thing that I would I would want to emphasize in terms of um, having a sense of purpose um, and a sense, uh, you know, meaning to one's life, which is so important. But it's also about um, the activism, the self-organization of children and young people. And I think in particular in the context of climate change and the extraordinary psychic threat that that represents for this generation of young. I mean, none of us really can imagine what it's like to be growing up now at this time when we're really beginning to discover just how precarious the future of the world is. But I've been really struck by the, the ways in which the young have gathered together, um, many cases completely independent of, of um, adults and, and adult mentors and so on. And the self-organization, the sense of purpose, I think it really is an, an incredible resource for young people in this very, very challenging environment that they're, they're growing up in. So I would like to put that on the table as my sort of closing point, never forget the value of peer relations, peer support and self-organization as a resource for resilience in difficult environments. Yeah, just a quick uh, closing thought. Um, I think that we should be really careful not to make being a resilient child like a gold standard that every child has to be and think about resilience. And it often is meant, uh, I think, in popular culture as being about being able to overcome stresses. And I think we should really be able to look at that and say, well, do children need all of the stresses that are there in front of them? And are there any that we can take away from them as a society, whether it's climate change or homework, other things that we can remove rather than making them having to be more resilient? I think that's really key. And that applies to children and also I think adolescents and young people as well. And just anecdotally, I remember being told at university, oh, you know, it's intentionally stressful here because we want to break you down to build you back up again so that you can cope later in life. And I think that attitude kind of runs quite deep in society about, you know, building up your resilience and you can cope with everything. And I think that really needs to be challenged and we need a healthier view on resilience, but also on society and well-being as well. 
following from that, if, if we want to have an idea of what resilience uh, might be, can what would it look like if we challenged ourselves to have that be something that was more collectivist, that was more interdependent and empathic and empathetic, and um, that might be threatening to parents, older generations, uh, groups in power. Um, but, um, you know, as, as others have said, doesn't that open up a lot of opportunities and uh, resources and creativity um, and hope, I think, because, um, we are still going to be in that world that our, you know, the, the younger generation is going to eventually be running. <laughs> so um, maybe, yeah, thing, things can change in that way. And uh, if, if in seeking to promote resilience, holding on really loosely to what that means to let kids define that a bit, I think is really helpful. And that concludes the time we have for today's podcast. I'd like to thank our panel once again for being here and sharing their points of view. And thanks to you, our audience, for listening. Please join us again next month where we will be discussing COVID and individual level resilience. Please join us again next month where we will be discussing family resilience. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high-quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to, understanding of, and quality of resilience research, and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more, or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.